the Start HBS podcast from the Entrepreneurship Club at Harvard Business School, where we talk with people who've been on meaningful journeys and started audacious ventures. Today's guest is Karen Mills, a professor of the TEM unit. That's the Entrepreneurial Manager, a first-year course at HBS. Karen was the administrator of the U.S. Small Business Administration from 2009 to 2013 and served as a member of President Obama's cabinet. Prior to her time at the SBA, she had extensive experience in the private sector, working as a venture capitalist and as a partner in several private equity firms. This past year, her book entitled Vintech, Small Business, and the American Dream was published. This episode of Start HBS is sponsored by Pair VC. Pair partners with founders from day zero to build category-defining companies, including DoorDash, Garden Health, Gusto, and Branch. Pair has partnered with 117 student founders so far, and they have raised over $650 million. Check out pair.vc dorm for more information. Today's hosts are myself, Isabel Yap, an EC at HBS, and Alex Spencer, an RC. Let's dive right in. So one thing in reading your background, I noticed that you have an entrepreneurial family. Um, one quote, I think it might have been your grandfather that said, in our family, we start businesses and we own and operate businesses. So I'm curious how the entrepreneurial sort of gene has been passed down and how that shaped your view of business. Well, I come from a family, as, as you noted, um, who has always been in business for themselves. And um, this is one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about small business and really about the, you know, the American dream because my family, both of my grandparents came to this country um, from Russia and um, they didn't have anything when they came. And um, my grandfather Jack, who is the one you quoted, was a really big influence on me growing up. And I used to hear his stories and I would go to the factory and in college I worked for, um, he had started a textile business and um, the other side of the family had started a candy business. So we had these businesses and my parents and my grandparents always had their office right outside the factory floor. So it was um, one of the reasons I was so at home when I came here is that I grew up talking about how the machines were running and you know what the production was that day and what we should do to sell more product. So this was really in my blood. And the idea that you can sort of start from nothing and build uh, a life of opportunity, this is the story um, that I lived. And I feel that if this path is... Uh, now has more frictions and blockages, um, it's my job to make it more available to more Americans. Interesting. So one other thing I noted was that you're a big believer in regional innovation clusters. Um, so could you maybe speak to that a little, you know, at the SBA and, and how they form and, and um, what's your sort of outlook in, in the U.S.? Well, I'm a believer in regional innovation clusters, and they are really the reason uh, why I got the job in Washington working for President Obama. I had never done anything really in government or politics, um, but 
I was in Maine. My husband had become the president of Bowdoin College, and we had picked up our three kids and mm. moved to Maine. I had reverse commuted for five years to finish a fund, a uh, venture capital fund that we had started. And now I'm, I'm in Maine, um, not really doing too much. And the governor calls. And the governor said to me, you know, Karen, um, it's a very small state. So uh, he said, look, I need you to do something. The Naval Air Station in Brunswick, Maine, where I lived, had just gone on the base closure list, a BRAC closure. And this was very tumultuous because they were the biggest employer in town. And I said, right. well, Governor, uh, you know, what am I supposed to do? I don't really know anything about this. And he said, you're a venture capitalist. Create some jobs. So I had mm-hmm. uh, a, a moment of you know crisis. Mm-hmm. And I looked out my window, and I can almost see the air station. I said, well, I better do something. This is my community. I'm used to investing in growing companies. You know, I, I care about creating jobs. What can we do? And what we ended up doing was creating a regional innovation cluster strategy. And uh, I'll never forget Mike Porter, who's a busy guy, um, came with two days notice with me to talk to the governor and the legislature about creating a cluster program. And we created, our first cluster was funded by uh, the Labor Department. It was a cluster of the main boat builders and the composite technology uh, group from the University of Maine because Maine has been building boats for 400 years, but here technology was going to change the game with these thin but very strong composites that make good boat hulls. Mm. But you needed new skills in order to figure out how workers could make these composites, and small boat builders didn't have the money to retrain their workforce. So we created a training center, and all of this uh, composites companies and, and training still is occurring uh, mm-hmm. on the base now, many years later after the closure. So I ended up writing a paper on this um, for Brookings. And it got noticed, and I got uh, asked to be on the Obama transition team. This was the fall of 2008, and I was in Washington uh, working on the team. And they said to me, "Um, do you want the job as the head of the SBA? And I said, yes, I definitely want that job. I'm unemployed, which was true at the time. (laughs) And they said, well, you have to have an interview. I said, well, I haven't had an interview in 25 years. Okay, who am I going to interview with? And they said, the (laughs) president-elect. So I flew to Chicago. I said, who else is going to be in the room? And they said, nobody. (laughs) So I met with the president for about 40 minutes. We got along, and he gave me the job. Wow. Was it... um I guess I'm curious because this is, as you said, 2008. Like, what was going through your mind at that time in terms of joining at a point when the the country is is in this crisis? TARP had had happened, and you know the the recession was sort of looming, right? This was a moment of real crisis, and I think we forget because it's more than 10 years ago how bad it was. And if, if you read Geithner's uh, book now and Bernanke they, they, and Paulson, they really uh, saved the country. We were um, right on the edge, and I was literally right in the middle of this. Mm. So um, one of the reasons that I knew how bad it was is I was actually old enough to have lived through a few of these 
recessions. Mm -hmm. In fact, in 2000, uh, no, in, in 1990, the 1991-92 recession, I was running a portfolio of leverage buyouts in industrial companies, factories around the country, which we had levered mm -hmm. uh, in the first sort of wave of leverage buyouts when uh, things went south. So I knew what was uh, going on with small businesses and uh, what happens when bank debt freezes. Mm -hmm. This was the situation. So as I came into the administration in the first quarter of 2009, we lost 1.8 million small business jobs. It was just a disaster. And one of the reasons was because credit markets had frozen. Banks had stopped lending because they had gotten overextended in these bad mortgages. They had no room on their balance sheets for small business loans, and they um, shut it down. They pulled credit lines from mm -hmm. small businesses. So I went to the White House and convinced Larry Summers and uh, President Obama um, to let me do something quite aggressive. I think if um, I'd been a politician, maybe I might not have done this, but I was a venture <laughs> capitalist. Right. I thought my job was to solve this problem, and there was a great sense of urgency. Mm. And I convinced them to let me raise the guarantee rate on SBA loans, SBA guarantees bank loans. Right. And um, they let me raise that guarantee rate to 90%. So banks were only taking 10% of the risk mm -hmm. and eliminate all the SBA fees. And to do that with Recovery Act money. And the result was quite dramatic. We got 1,000 banks back to SBA lending in six months. Mm -hmm. And this taught me a lot of things. Um, but it, it, the lesson stayed with me, and actually I think it has led to, um, was really one of the compelling reasons why I wrote this recent book on fintech, because small businesses are important to the economy, and mm -hmm. this experience really brought home to me how important access to capital is for America's small businesses. Do you think, do you think small businesses play a role in helping um, solve some of the ch social challenges that we have. For example, I know that the opioid e epidemic adversely af affects, um, you know, places in, more in the center of the country, not so much in, you know, whether it's Boston, San Francisco, New York City. And, you know, in my head, part of that might be, you know, coming from Amazon, working in a big tech company that's growing at a CAGR that's almost unbelievable you see that these companies have become talent magnets and you know a lot of folks have um, migrated to these big cities um, and at the same time you see sort of small business in a way uh, dwindling from a talent perspective um, however you know you have programs like SBA that sort of serve as a jolt to, to help these companies gain access to reasonable financing. So I'm just curious if there's some crossover from a social perspective, not just a, you know, business debits and credits perspective as to how you think about small business policy as it relates to social problems. I think small businesses are one of the most important and under-recognized uh, economic engines in this country. And 
They have an enormous place in the social uh, stability of our country and in access and opportunity. Half the people who work in this country own or work for a small business. So I used to say I went to sleep mm-hmm. at night worrying about half of America's jobs. There's 30 million small businesses, but only less than 200,000 are sort of the high-tech small businesses mm-hmm. that we yeah. all talk right. about in you know right. first-year TEM class and, and think <laughs> about high-growth businesses. Now, they're very important because they're going to become the next Amazon and the next Google. But on the other hand, um, most of the small businesses are going to be part of the local economy or part of the supply chain economy. Nonetheless, they play a critical role in the economy and in the social fabric of our lives. And I think one of the sad things that I fight about all the time is that somehow their voice is not always heard. Mm. Maybe it's because if you look at economists, macroeconomic models don't include a lot of influence of small business. You know, if you think about Keynesian economics, you know, the consumer is important. Investment is important. Well, that's big business. Government spending is important. Where where do small businesses show up? Mm -hmm. So in the first chapter of the book, I make this case. Um, I also think, to your point about the social fabric, as the nature of work changes, more and more people are going to be either in the gig economy where they have their own business and maybe they don't have all the benefits. uh, So we have to think about policy that creates a social structure and a benefit structure around that work. And then what about Main Street? I think in the future, um, people are going to want to go down and have a coffee at the coffee shop because Mm -hmm. they're gonna want human interaction and activity. So your local Mm -hmm. small businesses I believe are going to become more important in the future, not less important. Another reason to make sure that they've got access to capital and that they have a voice in our our policy. Just shifting a little bit, I guess, more to advice for our listeners, which includes students. I think there's an appetite to like serve the public. But something I have heard a lot of my classmates say is like, I need to develop my skills first, or maybe I should work a couple years in private sector before I help the country. Um, And it's not just for the U.S. I mean, it's for people from other countries, too. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on on such a career path to public service. Everyone asked me what my plan was to get, you know, through life. And and what I say is there was no plan. (laughs) Um, So I think it is very important to get some skills under you. And I believe it is much uh, better to go first to the private sector and um, enjoy, you know, a nice career and career paths, Mm. make some money, pay off your student debt, and also find out how we get things done. Because um, one of the things that I saw in government is that there's a lack of some of the skills that we teach at the business school and that you learn very often, you know, working in a startup, working in some Mm -hmm. of these companies. And um, one of the things I brought when I went to government was um, I'd start every meeting with this question, what's the outcome we're trying to achieve? And people could not understand. They'd say, well, let me open this deck and I'll show you. I said, keep the deck shut until you (laughs) tell me. What are we trying to do here? Why? 
why are we sitting in this room? What are we going to be spending our energy on? What does victory look like? And they'd say, well, uh, we want to have a meeting at the White House. I said, a meeting is not an outcome. So mm. this notion that we are working very hard to um, achieve something together, I think is a place um, that you have to start. And once you say, okay, this is the outcome we want to get to, then you can say, how do I reverse engineer success? How do I um, set some milestones that let me know that I am on the path to this outcome? And as we get to each mm. uh, milestone, let's celebrate victory to remind everyone where it is we're trying to go. These skills, um, I think helped me a lot at the SBA, and they turned out to be really important in changing the culture. When I came to the SBA, it was 30th out of 30 in best places to work. It was at the bottom oh. of <laughs> all the agencies. And when I left, it was um, it was really an energized and transformed uh, place. Not everything <laughs> was perfectly transformed, but I asked people why, you know, why they felt better about uh, their jobs or their activity, and they said, it's about our mission. So people were very motivated to help small business owners, but we had to set out these outcomes that helped them get uh, on the path and, and be able to measure some sense of success along the way. So earlier you mentioned the gig economy and the future of work, which is sort of something I've been thinking a lot about. I'm sort of an AI enthusiast and practitioner. So it strikes me that in the next, call it 10, 15 years, we're going to experience a level of automation that we've never seen before as, as a civilization. You know, I, I think I look at the trucking industry specifically, I, that's about $740 billion as an industry, but a third of that cost is labor cost. So, um, you know, I know there are 30 million small businesses as defined by the SBA. I would, I, I don't know how many of them are trucking companies, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was 100,000. Um, and I think that number, in my opinion, is going to zero in the next, you know, well, it won't go to zero, it'll go to five or 10. You'll, you'll have these conglomerates with autonomous driving. So um, my question to you is, around w with that dynamic, how how should we think about consolidation and automation versus um, small business? And, and do you have sort of a viewpoint on the future of work as it relates to small business and automation? I do think AI is going to transform the future of work. But I have to say, I think that you uh, are not going to see automated trucking uh, as the first application in your life. Uh, in the near term, I think financial services and particularly banking and lending uh, is going to be something where AI is um, infused in your day-to-day -day activity um, pretty quickly. I read about this in the book on FinTech Small Business in the American Dream, and I tell about um, this uh, you know, small business owner, Alex, who um, has a bot that helps her look at her business. And I've been going around the country describing this sort of small business dashboard where a small business owner has sucked up into this um, algorithm 
all of the information from their bank account, their credit card account, their QuickBooks account, their Square payments account, and it has spit out a cash flow projection, just like we do in TEM, of their business, and maybe a future projection that tells them that they need a certain amount of capital. That same projection is available to their lender, who then says, you know what? you are pre-approved for $7,000 because we see that you need that money in two weeks to pay payroll, but we also see that you can pay it back in six months after the Christmas season. And I think that this will transform, this artificial intelligence in the algorithm will transform small business lending, which is now a long and painful process, three months and full of frictions and paperwork. Mm. And That's, relationships. Sometimes. And, well, <laughs> the relationships, I think, will stay. But I think some of the pain and suffering will go away. So this is all the positive side, the good side of AI and um, how it will create more access and opportunity. And I'm very happy to go on and on about that. But there is a dark side to AI and the black box. Mm-hmm. And recently, you may have seen uh, that Apple Credit Card was confronted with an example of this. And I was very excited to see this because I've been talking about the dark side of AI, but now it's in the Twitter sphere, you know, um, <laughs> and, um, you know, getting a lot of play because uh, one person, one gentleman got uh, a much larger credit limit uh, on his Apple Card than his wife, who has a joint bank account with him. And um, Goldman Sachs has been trying to explain this and not doing really actually a terrific job. And Goldman Sachs is the, they're the bank behind the Apple Card. They are the bank behind Mm -hmm. the Apple Card. So the Apple Card algorithm is actually a Goldman Sachs algorithm. And there is Mm -hmm. a moment of crisis as we realize that our life is now going to be Um, governed by these algorithms that are opaque. We can't see inside them. And oh, hmm, they might discriminate. And we might not be able to see how. So I'm spending a tremendous amount of time with regulators um, in Washington, where I was this week, actually, trying to um, help them get the expertise inside of inside of their organizations in order to be able to govern algorithms and make sure we don't have this kind of disparate impact coming out of AI. It's going to be the challenge, our challenge mm-hmm. and really the challenge of your generation. Another sort of question I, I had in and around um, AI, fintechs, and small business lending is there's basically sort of three fintechs who are large originators of small business loans. We have Square, Cabbage, and On Deck, and then the the rest is a it's a real long tail of banks: Wells Fargo, Capital One, American Express, Bank of America, and so forth. Is it your view that there's an innovator's dilemma and new, there's room for new entrants? and maybe the squares of the world and the cabbages of the world were sort of take over as algorithms do more of the um, manual work that's being done in, in the Wells Fargo. My Full disclosure, my brother's a banker at Wells Fargo. <laughs> um, 
Or or do you think that the Goldman Sachs, we talked about them implementing algorithm or the Wells Fargo's of the world will sort of step up to the plate with respect to small business and serve them in an efficient manner? As you know, I've been out on book tour um, talking about exactly the playing field for small business lending. And I have a slide which has four uh, different categories of folks. The banks and the credit card operators are the first. The second is big tech, Amazon, Square, PayPal. The third are the sort of new challenger bank fintechs, you know, on deck and cabbage. And the last is a new category, which I call fintech infrastructure. You might think of Plaid or Yodely, people who are providing these data pipes that I described as feeding the new uh, algorithms and dashboards that um, we see coming up. And I ask everybody to vote. Who do you think are going to be the winners and the losers? And the vote al almost always ends up with big tech in the lead. Um, and that may be true because you see Alibaba uh, definitely in Asia has mm -hmm. taken on this market. Um, but I actually think, now I'm going to do a spoiler alert, so this is my view, um, I think the banks are going to win. And um, I think that there will also be some players like Square and PayPal and, and others who might wish to enter. I, I saw the other day Goldman, uh, not Goldman, um, Google has decided that they have a, a product, um, uh, checking account product that they might want to bring oh. to market. Mm. But I believe the banks have some advantages. First of all, they have low cost money. One of the problems with some of the fintechs is that they are charging, you know, 20, 30, 40% interest. Some of it is just too high. Why? Because they're getting their money from the banks. Hedge funds. Hedge funds, okay. And marketplace. And they're paying mm -hmm. 10 points more. Now the banks have their money from you, from your deposits. And what are they paying you? Not too much. So they have very cheap money and they no regulation, and the other great advantage they have is they have customers. And they have customers that they can provide a whole sequence of products to. So what's their problem? Well, they're dinosaurs. They're old and slow, they can't do tech, they have bad customer experience, they haven't changed in 50 or 100 years. Hmm. I think what happened was when they got challenged by the entrance like the cabbages and others who you know did a terrific service and job to to come in and and do this they've woken up and mm -hmm. i've met with um bank of america has actually some great products just like the small business utopia dashboard that they have introduced so mm -hmm. i think you cannot count them out and my personal hope is that the ultimate winner will be the community bank because mm -hmm. if the core processors of bank systems can get their act together and create a system where you can plug and play these new infrastructure players uh, with their new applications into a core banking system, then a community bank can have the tech it needs, compete with JP Morgan's $9 billion tech budget, and do what it does best, which is serve its community with relationships think this could be 
the beginning of a new era of relationship lending. Small businesses need a conversation. Once you say you are pre-approved for $7,000, why not sit down and have a conversation with your banker and say, hmm, maybe I'd, I'd like to borrow $20,000 and open up next door. Let's discuss whether this is a good idea for my business. And that is a good opportunity for a banker who can also cross-sell other products and great for the small business who now has access to capital and a trusted set of advice. We should be wrapping up. I have one last question before we go into the rapid fire, um, which is I'm sure students know the word fintech and there's a lot of interest around it, um, but it can also be kind of an intimidating phrase because there's just so much going on in the space and new things happening every day. What's your advice as someone who like wants to understand the ecosystem better in addition to reading the book, of course? <laughs> um, you know, yeah, like where do you even get started? How do you like start there? Well, it's true. There are so many aspects of fintech and, uh, you know, they don't all relate to each other. There's cryptocurrency and blockchain. And the area that I am focused on, I think, is is quite productive. And this is really around payments and lending. And I think the best place to start there is with financial institutions and what is happening around core activities um, that, that could create opportunity both for new companies and for uh, technologists mm. and for Harvard Business School students who really have the ability to pull all that together. Great. So we like to wrap up with some rapid fire questions. And the first one we, we like to ask is what or who inspires you? Well, I have to say, and coming to work at Harvard Business School actually gives me energy. Um, this is not something that I fully anticipated. Um, it's one of the hardest jobs I've ever had. Mm. But when I see students uh, make their way through life and face hard decisions, I become more optimistic um, about our future. And I know that we have many trials and tribulations, um, but I am really quite inspired by the way um, students of today are actually taking this notion of making a difference and executing on it. Now, what I wish for my students is that they would stay balanced on their own two feet. By that, I mean um, this is not the time for any more hoop jumping. You don't have to do what, um, when your friend gets a great job, I say to everyone, think good for them, irrelevant to me. What's relevant to you is that you are on a path that is leading to you to that outcome you try to achieve. Some of this uh, thinking about reverse engineering success, what, what is it that I wanna do? How do I want to be in this world? And then you say, okay, let me reverse engineer that outcome. Let me mm -hmm. think. Am I on the path that I feel good about being in order to, uh, to get to the goals that are right for me? That's when you feel balanced on your own two feet, and that's when I get energized and confident uh, as I see the students proceed. That's great. Awesome. And one last question here. Um, what's a lesson that you've had to learn the hard way? Um, well, this is 
a, a story. One day, um, I was in the White House working, and I was uh, running a bit late into a meeting in my favorite room in the residence, which is the state dining room. And we were having a lunch for the um, governors. And as I came into the room, um, there's a marble sort of piece uh, of the floor, and it's worn down by all the years since, you know, John Adams. Um, <laughs> and I, of course, was wearing high heels, and I slipped, and I came into the room um, feet first, and I had a cup of coffee <laughs> in my hand, which I then proceeded to spill all over the entire right-hand wall of the state dining room. Oh, my room. goodness. So... <laughs> And I came in sliding right in front of the press corps. Now, luckily, the president hadn't arrived yet, and the cameras weren't rolling. So they took me off and back into the kitchen, and they dusted me off. And I thought, well, I've escaped this humiliation. It's fine. But later, as I went back to the West Wing, everyone said to me, oh, I heard you slip going into the state dining room. What happened? Are you okay? <laughs> so um, I think one of the things that you learn um, you know, now I go back, and every time I went there, I, I looked at the wall to see if I could see the little coffee stains. <laughs> and I think, you know, if I wonder about how I left my mark on the White House, I think maybe it was the coffee stains that were my mark. <laughs> so the, the lesson I take with me is, you know, sometimes you slip and fall. And you got to pick yourself back up. And you've got to take it as sort of, I don't know, um, maybe that's how I left my mark. Maybe it was in that moment that I was down and out, um, mm -hmm. not that time that I was at the tip top, um, that um, maybe uh, is going to be my legacy. And how um, you don't know right. as you go through all this, what we think is our most important moment may or may not be so you just do your best and as i say you just try to stay balanced on your own two feet <laughs> thank you so much thank you for having me